A deadly drug has been linked to seven fatal overdoses this past week in Monroe County. It is also known as a horse tranquilizer. A new drug called Trank is showing up on the street. Xylazine is mixed with drugs like fentanyl, and the opioid antidote will not work with this new officials drug. Officials say Narcan does not work on that drug. However. Monroe County officials have found that the drug Xylazine, otherwise known Xylazine. as horse Xylazine. tranquilizer, Xylazine. has been linked to several fatal drug Xylazine. overdoses. Xylazine. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Boyce, and today's episode is about a drug called xylazine, which has recently made headlines across the United States as it's shown up in our illegal drug supplies. But this episode is really about the state of the war on drugs, because the xylazine catastrophe is of our own making. As I'll explain in this episode, there's nothing surprising or unusual about what's happening right now in Philadelphia and in other parts of the world. This is, sadly, how the war on drugs is designed to work. Back in the 1960s, Marshall McLuhan famously said, the medium is the message. And for the next 60 years, social scientists would argue over what the hell he meant. Now, of course, he meant that we listen to the radio different than we watch TV, and that we watch TV differently than we read a newspaper. So even if the same words are used in all three, we're likely to have a very different experience as consumers. Most of us get that today, in a world of podcasts and streaming media services, where we're always turning on some background noise or watching a YouTube video in our spare time. But McLuhan's real point was what happens next. He didn't care as much about the fact that different forms of media affect us in different ways as he did about the updates made to our world when new forms of media show up. He was concerned with how the message can change the culture where it exists. This used to be difficult for undergraduate students to get a hold of before the internet did its work on society. But now it's pretty easy to understand not only that the medium is the message, but also that the message changes how we receive messages in the future. Here's what I mean. How would you find out where the nearest courthouse is? What if I asked you about your local weather report for the next 24 hours? Or how about if I told you I'm desperately trying to find my friend from high school to deliver an important message? You'd probably be tempted to pick up your smartphone in the 2020s to solve all three problems. In the 2010s, I would have grabbed my laptop. In the 2000s, I would have dialed up the modem and hopped on a billboard site somewhere. And in the 1980s, I would have been forced to make a call. The medium is the message, and that message, in this case, that my iPhone apps can do anything, it often literally changes our world and the way we think. And as McLuhan often railed, we seldom think about it until after it happens, even though we could easily predict and possibly even avoid the bad places new technology will take us if we just had a forward-looking perspective when it comes to new tech. But we prefer to look backwards at what new technology can fix or make easier for us to do, instead of forward to what it might do to our world, say, in 20 years. Okay, that concludes today's lesson in communication theory. Good evening, everyone. That breaking news, an alert tonight about a dangerous drug out on the streets. Monroe County leaders now warning the public about a horse tranquilizer that has been linked to deadly drug overdoses. On March 9th, 2022, 
The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that xylazine was rampant in the city's illegal drug supply and that its use was resulting in a lot of overdose deaths, plus terrible side effects like skin abscesses. The article quoted a recent study, which I've linked in the episode description. It said that in Philly, xylazine was present in nearly 26% of overdose deaths in 2020, and that across all 10 areas that were analyzed in the study, xylazine was present in nearly 7% of all overdose deaths, a number that was 20 times higher than it had been in 2015. It sounds like we find ourselves in the midst of an unexpected drug epidemic, facing a drug most of us have never heard of. This should ring familiar, and the longer you've lived in the United States, the more familiar it probably rings. Ten years ago, most people hadn't heard of fentanyls, but people were already overdosing on them, and at the time, I was around five years into recovery from a few years addicted to fentanyl patches. They aren't new. In the 1990s, when I was coming of age, I heard PSAs about something dangerous and unexpected called ketamine which we were told caused brain damage and was killing people. I would later discover it'd been around for decades in the form of PCP. In the 1980s, a new scary drug called crack was presented via news and politicians as having come out of nowhere to wreak havoc on low-income communities. But I know people who, like Richard Pryor, were smoking crack back in the 1970s. Anytime you hear a news story about a, quote, dangerous new drug, you should be skeptical. The United States is a country that is forever chronically woke. We're forever tricking ourselves into thinking we aren't responsible for whatever problems we're currently facing. We continue to create new problems that are easy to spot from miles ahead. Then they predictably show up, and we pretend we don't understand how this happened to us. So let's start with a quick review of where the United States is currently at in its century-old, cruel, and failed war on drugs. After 90 years of locking people up, kicking them out of society, canceling them, and forcing them to lie about their use, we realized things were as bad as they'd ever been. In 2010, the year I'm pinning to that 90-year anniversary of the war on drugs, we were already in trouble. The opioid epidemic had taken off, although nowhere near the rate it's currently gobbling up bodies. I'll get to that. But first, I want to back out a bit further and try to pinpoint what kicked off that 2010 uptick in drug overdose and use. In 2003, Tom befriended most of us via MySpace. In 2004, we all met Mark Zuckerberg when he registered Facebook. YouTube began hosting videos in 2005, and Twitter started in 2006. So by 2010, something we might think of as the new digital economy was in effect, if only just barely. And something really awful started to happen that, today, we just sort of take for granted. We started to have strangers abuse us and criticize us in all sorts of awful ways, leaving our close inner circles in the position to comfort and support us. You might have found yourself the target of some of these early cyber bullies, people who would laugh at the pics you posted or mock comments you made. Our political stances were suddenly up for debate, because instead of being surrounded by our close-knit circles, we redefined friend to mean anyone with a computer who wanted to look at pics of our lives. And boy did it get nasty fast. Name-calling and shit-talking from fake accounts quickly became the norm. 
YouTube was maybe the most obvious place where you can see where I'm going with this. YouTube was a place where people could post their work, whether that work was a GoPro-like video of them riding ATVs around a track, or a garage band recording of you and your friends from high school rocking it out. Now think about the difference in experience from those who grew up in 2010 and those like me who grew up just 20 years earlier. I was part of a garage band called Nimbus. Shout out to Steve, Ryan, and Tyson. We sucked, like most high school bands do, but in our little city of Battle Creek, and in our practice sessions heard only by Steve's annoyed parents, we were usually given praise, support, encouragement, and love, not only from our support group, but a lot of times from our larger social networks, church members, local battle of the bands, and even at our high school. We might have been mocked a time or two, but it was more than balanced out by our social setting. We were in a small fishbowl. We didn't have the world pointing at us and exposing our insecurities. And because we received so much support and encouragement in comparison to how much shit we got, those around us could actually offer advice without us melting down and feeling attacked. Our friends were free to be good friends, the kind that'll say what we needed to hear. Nowadays, a kid who's graduating from high school has already learned a lot about a world that appears to be out to get them. A world watching with claws ready, waiting to pounce the second you say the wrong thing or don't perform as well as the next guy. It's no wonder we're seeing such a massive uptick in anxiety. The medium of the internet and social media have changed our cultural norms. The medium is the message. The reason drug overdoses started to spike around 2010, and the reason they're still spiking now, even more than before, is the world we live in. Social media has flipped the script, and where we used to be able to help our friends and family members see what others wouldn't say to them, now the world gives them shit all day long. So we're put in a position to play the counterbalancing role as friends. Friends nowadays often feel pressured to not tell their friends what they actually need to hear, because they won't be their friends for very long if they do. I've called this the booger on the face syndrome in the past. We've largely become a society that prefers to walk around with boogers on our faces because we don't want our friends to tell us what we can't see ourselves because of our humanness. And since the world is so mean in telling us we have boogers everywhere every day, that we are a booger, we don't hear the world in the same way as we would probably hear our friend if they had the gall to speak up. And meanwhile, we keep turning up the volume on that pain-creating machine of social media. So of course people are resorting to drugs, and then diving headfirst into dangerous use patterns. Our social circles have been shattered. COVID's upended our daily rituals and things that we felt like marked our identities. The networks which we've managed to avoid losing don't work right anymore because the world is currently designed to incentivize shit-talking and name-calling from strangers and unhealthy codependent behavior from our friends and family. And a lot of people in that situation naturally say fuck it. When the dope stops working as well as it once did, or when you can't afford it because the government has spent a century making sure you can't afford it, you might naturally look for any trick you can find to stretch out what you have or to make it work better. That's why xylazine is currently invading our street drugs, especially fentanyls. And just like fentanyls, it isn't always slipped in without users knowing. That new information age I was talking about earlier 
is side by side with a government who's out to make sure drug users encounter obstacles to success at every turn. So you can easily imagine a user who's struggling to make ends meet using an academic search engine to find drugs that make opioids last longer. What if that desperate user discovered a drug that veterinary doctors had been using for decades and what if that drug happened to be unregulated and easy to get? The war on drugs is designed to make sure that that person's logical choice is to buy that drug and use it. That's what's going on with xylazine. The first time I heard of xylazine was during my master's degree 10 years ago. And I didn't look very deep into it because it popped up in a drug article from Puerto Rico. That study showed that the drug was everywhere. That 22% of heroin or fentanyl users who thought they were not taking xylazine actually were. And that 35% of those taking it had developed active skin ulcers or open sores on their skin. And these things were nasty, like their skin was rotting off their bodies. That's probably the only reason I remember the article at all. In Puerto Rico, xylazine was and is showing up in what researchers often call speedballs. Mixtures of uppers and downers consumed at the same time, although they're not really a thing in the United States. I mean, technically they exist, but it's really hard to get cocaine and heroin into the same needle at the same time for logistical reasons. I did an entire episode about this a few months back, so check it out if you want to hear more. The drugs never feel like they kick in at the same time. The cocaine or methamphetamine kicks in first, and then, as it begins to wear off a few seconds later with coke and a few minutes later with meth, the opioids kick in. Remember that order of operations. It's important later on. The active stimulant sort of blocks our ability to feel the opioids until it wears off a bit. But that doesn't mean that the opioids aren't working. We just don't feel them yet. The fact that xylazine is consumed in combination with, quote, speedballs, uppers and downers, methamphetamine, or heroin and cocaine, or amphetamine with oxycotton, that means the formula I laid out before applies here. So if you're shooting up just xylazine, you'll feel just the xylazine kick in. But if you're banging xylazine, fentanyl, and cocaine in a single session, or even a single needle, the issue is that the stimulant might make the downers harder to notice. And you might use too much without even realizing it's kicked in under the effects of the stimulant. If you're feeling like you've heard this before, that's probably because I've talked about it before. And the deeper you look into the xylazine crisis, the more you realize that it's the same story, top to bottom, that we've seen over and over in this country. Crackdowns on a chemical trigger the iron law of prohibition. Since dealers are encountering a lot of police raids, they start to look for new ways to ship their drugs in smaller spaces, or different drugs to ship, drugs that are harder to detect. Fentanyls were one wave of this process. They came in and replaced or adulterated heroin when supplies became restricted. But it's not just opioids, it's everything right now. It was weed a few years back with all the synthetic K2 shit that was banned, updated, banned again, and updated again. Before that, it was regulation of speed and ephedrine and supplements like mini thins, which were something very different than I was a kid than they are now. The current active ingredient, which they call ephedrazine, it's just the name they use to describe their blend of legal stuff like yerba mate leaves, cayenne pepper, white willow bark, and green tea. This is not the ephedrine I took as a kid, 
because that ephedrine was outlawed and had to be replaced with a different drug. Okay, so xylazine is usually taken alongside opioids or other drugs to maximize their effects. But how does it work? This is the part that I remind you for the hundredth time that I am not a medical doctor and that this podcast is not here to offer medical advice. Now, since it isn't approved for human use, and there's little research on human subjects available, instead of xylazine, we should start by talking about clonidine. Xylazine is an analog of clonidine, a synthetic look-alike, which means they do similar things in the brain and body. They both work as agonists on alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. That just means they fire them up. And whenever those receptors fire up, our bodies react in a number of ways, which ultimately result in lower blood pressure. It might seem odd that adrenergic receptors would lower, not raise blood pressure, but the body has some weird roundabout wiring to get stuff done. In this case, firing up the alpha-2 adrenergic receptors causes them to initiate additional biological actions which work to ultimately lower norepinephrine levels in other parts of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex. That reduction of blood pressure and brain function ultimately feels like anxiety relief to many, and clonidine has successfully been used in humans to help with impulsive and hyperactive behavior, like that seen with ADHD. It's also used to treat withdrawal from tobacco, alcohol, benzos, and even opioids. And here's the kicker, when given alongside fentanyl after surgery, the amount of fentanyl required is reduced by up to 60%. And here we are, once again, on the doorstep of the war on drugs. Drug users are pretty clever. We have to be to survive in a culture that's designed to destroy us. So we do our homework, and it isn't hard to find the information I mentioned earlier about how xylazine extends the action of opioids. Once users discover that there's a drug that isn't regulated, a drug that I looked up before recording this episode and found a bottle for less than 20 bucks that appeared to be from a legit company, not on the dark web, of course, lots of people make the logical choice to buy that drug. Heroin is at least $20 a dose in most cities, often a lot more, and that dose lasts for an hour, two at best. Fentanyl kicks in harder but it wears off way faster too, and it only costs a little bit less. So to really have what feels like a good day, addicted people often have to redose over and over, running up a pretty hefty bill in the meantime. If you're banging $150 worth of dope every day, and you're watching your bank account quickly evaporate, you'd naturally be tempted to do what vets all over the world do if it meant you could cut your bill in half. And again, the war on drugs is the only reason dope is that expensive in the first place. And it's the only reason why it's unpredictable and unsafe, cut with all sorts of fillers and contaminants that leave users at risk every time we use, with or without xylazine. When you take fentanyl or heroin alongside a heavy dose of a benzodiazepine, like Xanax, or with something even more potent, like xylazine, you experience the combined effects of both drugs. With benzos and opioids, that's sometimes deadly because our auto-breathing neurons, called the pre-Botzinger complex, they shut down and we can stop breathing when we're asleep or passed out. With xylazine, that happens too, but xylazine also lowers our heart rate at low doses. 
At high doses, it really lowers our heart rate. Add to that the effects of heroin on our respiration, and you can see why taking these two drugs in unregulated, unmedicalized ways is pretty dangerous. And since xylazine isn't an opioid, when people overdose, a lot of times Narcan doesn't work. And of course, per our system's design, when users overdose and or die, they are blamed for their own deaths. And instead of the war on drugs being weakened, like it should be, it's strengthened because we don't have any other options in the United States. At least that's what we've been led to believe. Now I get it, a lot of people just like fentanyl, but a lot of those people would never have even tried it if we weren't living in a culture of prohibition. Most people who try it are using it as an alternative to heroin when the supply is low. And then when they find that it's enjoyable and more affordable, they might switch over. Now surely some of us would still do that if given the choice. There were times when I preferred fentanyl when I was using intravenously 15 years ago. But most of us wouldn't be messing with fentanyls at all, let alone mixing them with xylazine to stretch out the dose. If it was affordable, most of us would just take our heroin and fentanyl and nothing else. Even if we wanted to use all of these drugs together, we would have, one, advice from medical professionals who would encourage us to take precautions, two, safe supply so at least we could know how much we were taking, and three, the ability to be revived instead of buried if we do happen to overdose. Many users of xylazine with heroin report that they basically pass out for 20 minutes when they use it, and then they experience a prolonged opioid buzz for another 20 minutes or so. That says a lot about what we could do to make the situation safer. Cheap, clean heroin and fentanyl would just about eliminate xylazine use on the streets altogether. And safe xylazine would provide a gatekeeper between users and the drug. One who could explain the dangers, offer alternatives and harm reduction advice, along with the best dosage. But we don't think that way in our culture. When we see someone who's in a bad place where they're resorting to dumping dope into their bloodstream all day just to get by, we don't immediately get empathetic. We tend to get judgmental. You couldn't design a system better to ensure a never-ending epidemic used to defend a never-ending war. But what about those nasty skin infections? Here's why I think people probably wouldn't use xylazine very often if they were getting it from reputable dealers with safe supply who would educate them about the effects of the drug. Now in the past, I've said repeatedly on this show that most drugs are safe, but when we consume xylazine, a process kicks off that produces two groups of chemicals which our body often uses for important tasks, reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species. These are things like hydrogen peroxide or hydroxyl radicals, and in normal doses released at appropriate times, they do important things in the body, including initiating death in cells. I know, I know, science, right? But stay with me. All that means is that our cells are programmed to die when they need to die so that we don't wind up with cancer when we're five years old. Damaged cells often use signals, including reactive oxygen species, to let the cell know that it's time to die. And when xylazine gets in our bloodstream and starts releasing these chemicals all over the place, we can wind up with cell death all over the place, including on our skin. We don't have a war against drugs in the United States. We have a war against drug users and dealers. Wars don't heal people, 
or help them achieve success while overcoming barriers. And they usually wind up self-perpetuating. And in the process, they acquire innumerable soldiers whose identities and legacies come to be tied up with the wars that they fought in. Seldom do soldiers in even the most atrocious military actions consider themselves to be monsters or even bad guys. On the contrary, all soldiers are invited to view themselves as heroes, as the brave actors who are willing to do the hard work that others need done to survive. It's bullshit, and the longer we keep on with it, the more generations of soldiers will create, along with their lists of casualties, victims of this war. It's not an accident that patterns repeat. The drug war is designed to exchange the safety and well-being of drug users for the salaries and pensions of drug warriors, and in the process, to support a massive web of corporate interests, food service, correctional supplies, clothing, transportation, training classes, court, correctional employees, contractors. It's all just supposed to be business as usual. And that means the blood of the people who are destroyed by the system by this business as usual, it's to some degree on the hands of those who it feeds. It's long past time that we recognize that and change this system. There will always be a new xylazine around the corner, a new boogeyman to blame our fears on so we don't have to look in the mirror and do the work. But the boogeyman isn't real. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. <laughs>